How y'all doing there? So like thank y'all for stopping by for another episode of this Removing the Illusion podcast. Man, let me tell y'all. Now y'all know before we get started, I got to tell you what I'm smoking on. That is a cigar, that is. Tonight, I'm smoking on a CAO Brasilia. Man, let me tell you something here. This is a good stick, a fantastic stick. Matter of fact, the first time I had this stick, me and a lady friend of mine, we was down in Ybor City at a cigar spot down there called King Corona. The King Corona, man, they got a nice selection of cigars, man, and they got some good little, they got some good sandwiches in King Corona also with some good drinks. You can sit outside on the street there and watch all the people walk by, but this is the first time that I had this CAO Brasilia. You can go to my website and you can take a look at it. It's a good Dick, let me tell y'all. Now, I'm going to tell y'all what these people say first about this thing. Now, see, this thing here was released after five meticulous years of research and planning. Zio Brazilian is a full-flavored cigar made from one of the finest Brazilian wrapper leaves they've ever seen. Complex with an earthly, flowery flavor and a toasty, nutty quality. Full body with a long last, toasty finish. It's a good even burn, too. Now, they get all that earthly talk stuff like that. Now, y'all know, I just, I got to tell y'all what these people say, because they palate is more sensitive to mine. But let me tell you something. You can taste the notes in this stick here. That's what made me fall in love with this thing. You, it has a nice, like I tell you, when I first hit a cigar, in my lips is where I get a taste of, of, of the flavor at. And let me tell you something. This CO Brazilian, man, it is a good stick. The price point is probably anywhere, anywhere from, I think, a King Corona. I want to say I paid about $9, $9 for a stick, somewhere in that $9 to $10 range. But it's a very good stick. And if you ever get down to Yeeboard City, let me tell y'all something. You got to stop off at King Corona. Now, down in Yeeboard City, when you get down to Yeeboard City on that one little strip, that one little strip, there's a whole lot of nice cigars and pubs and pizza places along that strip. And you can go down to Ybor City and just spend the whole day on that one street. I know like when I go down there, I go down there and I go to a place called Tabo Brew. Tabo Brew right there on the corner. And they hand roll their cigars in there. And you can go up to King Corona. And then you can go up to the Lion's Den. And you can go to uh, Ybor City Cigars. And they got a good piece of place down there. Let me tell you something. I can go on and name from whatever down in Ybor City. Some of the nice five cigar establishments. You can just go down there and hang out all day. They got a nice little restaurants down there. Mainland down there. They got some good little, uh, little sport. <coughs> Excuse me. Little sports bar where y'all can sit in. And have you a little drink and socialize. And down there also, they got the uh, Arturo Fuente. Arturo Fuente has a nice little uh, boutique shop. It's right behind the train tracks. Like when you go in and you park the parking garage, when you park the parking garage, before you walk over the train tracks, if you look over there, you see like it looks like a little house. And be accepted. That's where I found out that Ashton, that uh, Arturo Fuente actually rolled some cigars for Ashton, it's like a little boutique house, but it's actually, like I say, it's Arturo Fuente Boutique, right before you cross over the train track, before you get, you know, get to the main street down there in uh, Ybor City. And now down in Ybor City, you also got them chickens running around too, so don't y'all mess with them chickens. Them chickens is part of the tradition down there. Don't mess with them chickens. But let me tell you something, if you ever get down there to Ybor City, and also some of probably some of your local cigar spots, you know, if you get a chance, pick up one of them CAO Brazilians. I know at Ross Cigars, I know Ross carried a CAO Brazilian. Do wait a minute. Do he carry yeah, 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 he does. He does. He's that's the Amazon I'm thinking about. You got the CO Brazilian and you got the CO Amazon that's on my website too. I look at Amazon, that's the seasonal one. But he also carries a CO Brazilian also. That's what they like is it's uh, it's like green, yellow, and white wrapper, almost like the um uh, uh, Rio de Janeiro colors, you know, down there in South America. But it's a great stick, let me tell you something. That CAO Brasilia. But, you know, I got to thinking about, you know, what's going on around here now is uh, this this corona thing. They shut down everything because this coronavirus thing. Now, I remember when I was a little fella, my brother always told me, whenever... <coughs> Whatever, excuse me now, I'm doing a little cough, but I ain't got the corona now. I ain't got the corona. I'm just doing a little cough because every round about the seasonal time this time, always get a little cough. You know, this always happens every year. It's part of 
It's part of how your body changes with the season. Your body adapts. So don't so people get a little coffee. Don't go don't people don't go crazy. But like I tell y'all before, my brother always told me whenever somebody in the media tell you one thing, you better look in the other direction. Cause something else is going on. And I'm looking at this corona thing, how they just shutting everything down. I've never seen anything like this in my in my whole life. I ain't been on this earth for a whole long or heck of a long time, but a little short time I have been on my on this earth, I ain't seen nothing like this. They shutting the whole country down. They shut down all the basketball, all the football, all the hockey, everything. I don't, they probably gonna even shut down Disney World down there in Orlando. They just shutting everything down because of this coronavirus. Now, more people die of the flu every year than have died of this corona. Now, people give me, they, they tell me, they say, well, this little corona thing here, the regular few flu is like 0% die from the regular flu. And but this corona thing is you got like four, five times died from, if you know, if you catch this corona thing. And also old people are substance to, 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 to this corona thing, too. If old people catch this corona thing, they can die quick. Let me tell y'all something. Before I get off into what I want to talk about, I want to I want to I want I want to share something with y'all because a lot of people don't know about this fella, Edward Bernay. A lot of people don't know about Ivy Lee. If you say Ivy Lee, people think about them Ivy Lee schools. But I believe was a real person, brilliant man. When people think about propaganda, do you really know propaganda? You really know what propaganda means, you know. And and because propaganda, you know, people try to stay away from that word propaganda. But whenever somebody say, uh, what 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 they call publicist, a publicist is nothing but a propagandist. People, the publicist, that's a a publicist is another word for propagandist. People who create propaganda, advertisement, advertising, the form of propaganda. A lot of times when people tell you something to put fear in you, it's for a reason. But before I get off into it, I want, I want, let's take a look at Edward Bernay. Because, like I said, a lot of folks don't know about this man, but this man is the king. If there's a god of propaganda, if there's a god of spin, what they call spin, it's Edward Bernay. Man, this guy, man, he is fascinating to me. Now, Ivy Lee was more so fascinating for me on the propaganda side and how he worked with businesses. But Edward Bernay was a mastermind of propaganda. Of propaganda. And, and in my, like, my ass, last episode, I talked to y'all about Sigmund Freud. Uh, Edward Bernay is a nephew of Sigmund uh, Freud. is like his, his double uncle. I ain't never heard nothing like that before. It's his double uncle. You know, you know, because Sigmund Freud was was uh was messing around with his with with with, uh, with, with his wife, sister, or cousin, or something like that. You know, because Sigmund Freud was all he was he was in all all kind of freaky stuff, you know. But he was doing it from an experimental standpoint and trying to learn about the human mind and body and all that kind of stuff like that. But he was also a great as as y'all <coughs> excuse me if y'all you listen to that episode, them two episodes on on Sigmund Freud. You know how brilliant this man was. And Edward Bernay, being his nephew, he admired his uncle. And he used what his uncle had learned about neuro, neuro, uh, neurological and, and psychology and human anatomy. He learned all that stuff, and, but he, and he applied it to propaganda. Or he applied it to making people do, he applied it to, I'm going to use the word conformity. He applied it to make people conform. Now, I know I'm getting off into a whole lot right here, and I shouldn't be because everything I'm saying right now, I should be saying afterwards. But this little talk here inspired me because of this corona thing going down and how the whole world, how the United States is just shutting down because of this corona thing. And more people has, <coughs> excuse me, has died of the, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, of the flu each year than has died because of this corona thing. Now, like I say again, you know, every year I always come down around about this time. I always come down with a little cough. You know, I go to the doctor, have my little Z-pack. You know, I had to have my little medication and now I'm getting over things. It happens to me every year. There's nothing different that, that, that my body goes through every year when the season change. Nothing different. But same thing now is people want to apply. They want to put it in your head that it's this Corona thing. So they got you all geared up. But I'm going to let y'all listen to Edward Bernay, the king of spin, the king of propaganda, the king of making people do what they do, do, do what, uh, do what, 
do what some business or corporation wants you to do or some government wants you to do. He's the king of putting spin on this thing. And Ivan Lee. And they ain't going to tell you about propaganda. Then I'm going to come back. Then I'm going to tell y'all my little, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give y'all my little perspective of what I think is going on with this corona thing. See, y'all all in the uproar and y'all need to be. Now, these people are just using what Edward Bernay laid out on how to control and make people do what you want to do and how to create a distraction so people don't think about what's going on. All right. So, look, I'm going to let y'all go here and I'm going to come back and I'm going to flip on y'all on the other side. I'm going to sit back here and I'm going to smoke on my CAO Brasilia and I'm going to come back after the talk and we're going to talk a little bit more about this thing. Okay. Y'all check out Edward Bernay. This guy's a fascinating, fascinating guy. And y'all learn something about this thing and y'all learn what's going on today, how y'all minds are being controlled, right, by the Internet and TV and everything else. All right. I'm going to catch up with y'all on the flip side. All right now. Edward Bernays. Edward Louis Bernays, German, November 22nd, 1891. March 9th, 1995, was an Austrian-American pioneer in the field of public relations and propaganda, referred to in his obituary as the father of public relations. Bernays was named one of the 100 most influential Americans of the 20th century by life. He was the subject of a full-length biography by Larry Ty called The Father of Spin, 1999, and later an award-winning 2002 documentary for the BBC by Adam Curtis called The Century of the Self. His best-known campaigns include a 1929 effort to promote female smoking by branding cigarettes as feminist torches of freedom and his work for the United Fruit Company connected with the CIA-orchestrated overthrow of the democratically elected Guatemalan government in 1954. He worked for dozens of major American corporations including Procter & Gamble and General Electric, and for government agencies, politicians, and nonprofit organizations. Of his many books, Crystallizing Public Opinion, 1923, and Propaganda, 1928, gained special attention as early efforts to define and theorize the field of public relations. Citing works of writers such as Gustav L. E. Bone, Wilfred Trotter, Walter Lippmann, and his own double uncle Sigmund Freud, he described the masses as irrational and subject to herd instinct and outlined how skilled practitioners could use crowd psychology and psychoanalysis to control them in desirable ways. Family and Education Edward Bernays was born to a Jewish family seven the son of Eli Bernays and Anna Freud Bernays. His great-grandfather was Isaac Bernays, chief rabbi of Hamburg. Bernays was a double nephew of Viennese psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud by virtue of his mother, Freud's sister, and of his father's sister, Martha Bernays Freud who married Sigmund. The Bernays family moved from Vienna to the United States in the 1890s. Ely Bernays became a grain exporter at the Manhattan Produce Exchange, then sent for his wife and children. In 1892, his family moved to New York City, where he attended DeWitt Clinton High School. In 1912 he graduated from Cornell University with a degree in agriculture, but chose journalism as his first career. He married Doris E. Fleischmann in 1922. Fleischmann, a member of the Lucy Stone League, was public about keeping her last name, and her husband not only sanctioned but touted this fact. She was the first married woman to be issued a U.S. passport without her husband's last name. Later, however, she changed her mind and her name, becoming Doris Bernays. By all accounts, Fleischmann played a major though quiet role in the Bernays public relations business including ghost-writing numerous memos and speeches, and publishing a newsletter. Career after graduating from Cornell, Bernays wrote for the National Nurseryman Journal. Then he worked at the New York City Produce Exchange, where his father was a grain exporter. He went to Paris and worked for Louis Dreyfus and Company reading grain cables. By December of the same year he had returned to New York. Medical Editor Following a meeting in New York with school friend Fred Robinson, Bernays became co-editor of Medical Review of Reviews and Dietetic and Hygienic Gazette in 1912. They took editorial positions in favor of showers and against corsets and distributed free copies to thousands of physicians across the country. Two months later they took up The Cause of Damaged Goods, an English translation of Les Averies by Eugene Breuer. After publishing a positive review of the play, Bernays and Robinson wrote to its lead actor, Richard Bennett, the editors of the Medical Review of Reviews support your praiseworthy intention to fight sex pruriency in the United States by producing Breuer's play Damaged Goods. You can count on our help. The play controversially dealt with venereal disease and prostitution Bernays called it a propaganda play that fought for sex education. 
He created the Medical Review of Review Sociological Fund Committee and successfully solicited the support of such elite figures as John D. Rockefeller, Jr., Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt, Reverend John Haynes Holmes, and Anne Harriman Sands Rutherford Vanderbilt, wife of William Kissam Vanderbilt. Press Agent After his foray into the world of theater, Bernays worked as a creative press agent for various performers and performances. Already, he was using a variety of techniques which would become hallmarks of his later practice. He promoted the Daddy Long Legs stage play by tying it in with the cause of charity for orphans. To create interest in Diaghilev's ballet's Russes, he educated Americans about the subtleties of ballet and publicized a picture of Flor Rebels, wearing a tight-fitting dress, at the Bronx Zoo, posed with a large snake. He built up Enrico Caruso as an idol whose voice was so sensitive that comically extreme measures were taken to protect it. World War I After the U.S. entered the war, the Committee on Public Information hired Bernays to work for its Bureau of Latin American Affairs, based in an office in New York. Bernays, along with Lt. F. E. Ackerman, focused on building support for war, domestically and abroad, focusing especially on businesses operating in Latin America. Bernays referred to this work as psychological warfare. After fighting ended, Bernays was part of a 16-person publicity group working for the CPI at the Paris Peace Conference. A scandal arose from his reference to propaganda in a press release. As reported by the New York World, the announced object of the expedition is to interpret the work of the Peace Conference by keeping up a worldwide propaganda to disseminate American accomplishments and ideals. Bernays later described the realization that his work for the CPI could also be used in peacetime. There was one basic lesson I learned in the CPI that efforts comparable to those applied by the CPI to affect the attitudes of the enemy, of neutrals, and people of this country could be applied with equal facility to peacetime pursuits. In other words, what could be done for a nation at war could be done for organizations and people in a nation at peace. Council on Public Relations After returning to New York, Bernays opened a public relations business. In 1923 he published a book, Crystallizing Public Opinion, outlining his profession, and taught a course at New York University. Both of these are considered firsts in the modern field of public relations. Bernays, who pursued his calling in New York City from 1919 to 1963, styled himself a public relations counsel. He had very pronounced views on the differences between what he did and what people in advertising did. A pivotal figure in the orchestration of elaborate corporate advertising campaigns and multimedia consumer spectacles, he nevertheless is among those listed in the Acknowledgements section of the Seminal Government Social Science Study Recent Social Trends in the United States, 1933. Notable Clients and Campaigns Bernays's famous corporate clients included Procter & Gamble, the American Tobacco Company, Cartier Incorporated, Best Foods, CBS, the United Fruit Company, General Electric, Dodge Motors, the Fluoridationists of the Public Health Service, Knox Gelatin, and innumerable other big names. Bernays attempted to help Vanita Hair Nets Company to get women to wear their hair longer so they would use hair nets more. The campaign failed but did get government officials to require hair nets for some jobs. Bernays worked with Procter & Gamble for Ivory Brand Bar Soap. The campaign successfully convinced people that ivory soap was medically superior to other soaps. He also promoted soap through sculpting contests and floating contests because the soap floated better than competing products. Bernays used his uncle Sigmund Freud's ideas to help convince the public, among other things, that bacon and eggs was the true all-American breakfast. In the 1930s, his Dixie Cup campaign was designed to convince consumers that only disposable cups were sanitary by linking the imagery of an overflowing cup with subliminal images of vaginas and venereal disease. He was publicity director for the 1939 New York World's Fair. Another selection from his papers, The Typescript on Publicizing the Physical Culture Industry, 1927, Bernard McFadden, reveals Bernays' opinion of the leader of the physical culture movement. Yet another client, department store visionary Edward A. Philine, was the subject of the typescript on a Boston department store magnate. Bernays' typescript on the importance of Samuel Strauss, 1924, Private Life shows that the Public Relations Council and his wife were fans of consumerism critic Samuel Strauss' citation needed. Light's Golden Jubilee In October 1929, Bernays was involved in promoting Light's Golden Jubilee. The event, which spanned across several major cities in the U.S., was designed to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Thomas Edison's invention of the light bulb, though the light bulb had been previously invented by Joseph Swan. The publicity elements of the Jubilee, 
including the special issuance of a U.S. postage stamp and Edison's recreating the invention of the light bulb for a nationwide radio audience, provided evidence of Bernays love for big ideas and ballyhoo. A follow-up event for the 75th anniversary, produced for television by David O. Selznick, was titled Light's Diamond Jubilee and broadcast on all four American TV networks on October 24, 1954. Political Clients in 1924 Bernays set up a vaudeville pancake breakfast for Calvin Coolidge to change his stuffy image before the 1924 election. Entertainers including Al Jolson, John Drew, Raymond Hitchcock, and the Dolly sisters performed on the White House lawn. The event was widely reported by American newspapers, with the New York Times running the story under the headline President Nearly Laughs. 30. A desperate Herbert Hoover consulted with Bernays a month before the 1932 presidential election. Bernays advised Hoover to create disunity within his opposition and to present an image of himself as an invincible leader. Bernays advised William O'Dwyer, in his candidacy for mayor of New York City, on how to appear in front of different demographics. For example, he should tell Irish voters about his actions against the Italian Mafia and Italian voters about his plans to reform the police department. To Jews he should appear as a committed opponent of the Nazis. He helped to name the President's Emergency Committee for Employment, suggesting this name as preferable to the Committee for Unemployment. During World War II, Bernays advised the United States Information Agency as well as the Army and Navy. He was chairman of the National Advisory Committee of the Third U.S. War Loan, co-chairman of the Victory Book Campaign, and part of the New York State Defense Council. In the 1950s, some of his ideas and vision helped portray India as the most democratic republic in Asia by having the Republic of India adapt a Bill of Rights. Freedom of the Press freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, and freedom of petition were added to the Constitution of India. Bernays reported turning down the Nazis, Nicaragua under the Somoza family, Francisco Franco and Richard Nixon. Nonprofit Clients In 1920 Bernays worked on the first NAACP convention in Atlanta, Georgia. His campaign was considered successful because there was no violence at the convention. His campaign focused on the important contributions of African Americans to whites living in the South. He later received an award from the NAACP for his contribution. Bernays also worked on behalf of many nonprofit institutions and organizations. These included, to name just a few, the Committee on Publicity Methods in Social Work, 1926-1927, the Jewish Mental Health Society, 1928, the Book Publishers Research Institute, 1930-1931, the New York Infirmary for Women and Children, 1933, the Committee for Consumer Legislation, 1934, the Friends of Danish Freedom and Democracy, 1940, the Citywide Citizens Committee on Harlem, 1942, and the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, 1954-1961. Freud. In 1920, Bernays organized the publication of Freud's introductory lectures on psychoanalysis in the U.S., sending royalty money back to his uncle in Vienna. Freud turned down further offers at promotion, such as a possible lecture tour and an invitation to write 3,000-word newspaper columns, for $1,000 each, on topics such as the wife's mental place in the home and what a child thinks about. When a person would first meet Bernays, says Scott Cutlip, it would not be long until Uncle Sigmund would be brought into the conversation. His relationship with Freud was always in the forefront of his thinking and his counseling. According to Erwin Ross, another writer, Bernays liked to think of himself as a kind of psychoanalyst to troubled corporations. In addition to publicizing Freud's ideas, Bernays used his association with Freud to establish his own reputation as a thinker and theorist. Tobacco. In 1927, Bernays worked briefly for Lickett and Myers, makers of Chesterfield cigarettes. He pulled a stunt against the competing brand, Lucky Strike, which involved mocking the endorsements of opera singers who said lucky strikes were kind to your voice. George Washington Hill, head of the American Tobacco Company, which made lucky strike, promptly hired Bernays away from Lickett and Myers. Girl in Red advertisement for lucky strike, shot by Nicholas Murray, a photographer enlisted by Bernays to help popularize feminine thinness and cigarette smoking. When he started working for American Tobacco Company, Bernays was given the objective of increasing lucky strike sales among women, who, for the most part, had formerly avoided smoking. The first strategy was to persuade women to smoke cigarettes instead of eating. Bernays began by promoting the ideal of thinness itself, using photographers, artists, newspapers, and magazines to promote the special beauty of thin women.
medical authorities were found to promote the choice of cigarettes over sweets. Homemakers were cautioned that keeping cigarettes on hand was a social necessity. Torches of Freedom The first campaign succeeded, women smoked more cigarettes, American tobacco company brought in more revenue, and Lucky Strike led the market in growth. But a taboo remained on women smoking in public. Bernays consulted with psychoanalyst Abraham Brill, a student of Freud's, who reported to him that cigarettes represented torches of freedom for women whose feminine desires were increasingly suppressed by their role in the modern world. Bernays organized a contingent of women to smoke cigarettes torches of freedom at the 1929 Easter Sunday Parade in New York. The event was carefully scripted to promote the intended message. Bernays wrote, Because it should appear as news with no division of the publicity, actresses should be definitely out. On the other hand, if young women who stand for feminism someone from the Women's Party, say could be secured, the fact that the movement would be advertised to, would not be bad. While they should be good-looking, they should not be too model Y3 for each church covered should be sufficient. Of course they are not to smoke simply as they come down the church steps. They are to join in the Easter parade, puffing away. The march went as planned, as did the ensuing publicity, with ripples of women smoking prominently across the country. Green Ball in 1934, Bernays was asked to deal with women's apparent reluctance to buy Lucky Strikes because their green and red package clashed with standard female fashions. When Bernays suggested changing the package to a neutral color, Hill refused, saying that he had already spent millions advertising the package. Bernays then endeavored to make green a fashionable color. The centerpiece of his efforts was the Green Ball, a social event at the Waldorf Astoria, hosted by Narcissa Cox Vanderlip. The pretext for the ball and its unnamed underwriter was that proceeds would go to charity. Famous society women would attend wearing green dresses. Manufacturers and retailers of clothing and accessories were advised of the excitement growing around the color green. Intellectuals were enlisted to give highbrow talks on the theme of green. Before the ball had actually taken place, newspapers and magazines, encouraged in various ways by Bernays's office, had latched onto the idea that green was all the rage. Modus operandi. Throughout the job, Bernays concealed the fact that he was working for the American Tobacco Company, and in fact succeeded in keeping his own name out of the affair as well. Staff were instructed never to mention his name. Third parties were used, and various notable people received payments to promote smoking publicly as if on their own initiative. Decades later, however, Bernays boasted about his role. Bernays did not smoke cigarettes himself, and persistently tried to induce his wife Doris to quit. After his semi-retirement in the 1960s, he worked with the pro-health anti-smoking lawyer John Banshuff's group, Ash, and supported other anti-smoking campaigns. United Fruit and Guatemala The United Fruit Company, today's Chiquita Brands International, hired Bernays in the early 1940s for the purpose of promoting banana sales within the United States. Promote them he did, by linking bananas to good health and to American interests, and by placing them strategically in the hands of celebrities, in hotels, and other conspicuous places. Bernays also argued that United Fruit needed to put a positive spin on the banana-growing countries themselves, and for this purpose created a front group called the Middle America Information Bureau, which supplied information to journalists and academics. United Fruit shut down the Middle America Information Bureau in 1948 under the new presidency of Thomas Dudley Cabot. Bernays resented this change but stayed on with the company, for a reported annual fee of more than $100,000. Bernays worked on the national press and successfully drummed up coverage of Guatemala's communist menace. The company became alarmed about the political situation in Guatemala after Jacobo Arbenz Guzman became president in March 1951. On March 21, 1951, Bernays told United Fruit's head of publicity, Edmund Whitman, that Guatemala could reprise Iran's recent nationalization of British petroleum. We recommend that immediate steps be undertaken to safeguard American business interests in Latin American countries against comparable action there. News knows no boundaries today. To disregard the possibilities of the impact of events one upon another is to adopt a head in the sand ostrich policy. He recommended a campaign in which universities, lawyers, and the U.S. government would all condemn expropriation as immoral and illegal, the company should use media pressure to induce the President and State Department to issue a policy pronouncement comparable to the Monroe Doctrine concerning expropriation. In the following months, the New York Times, the New York Herald Tribune, Time, Newsweek, and the Atlantic Monthly had all published articles describing the threat of communism in Guatemala. 
a Bernays memo in July 1951 recommended that this wave of media attention should be translated into action by promoting a. a change in present U.S. ambassadorial and consular representation, b. the imposition of congressional sanctions in this country against government aid to pro-communist regimes, c. U.S. government subsidizing of research by disinterested groups like the Brookings Institution into various phases of the problem. Per Bernays's strategy, United Fruit distributed favorable articles and an anonymous report on Guatemala to every member of Congress and to national opinion molders. They also published a weekly Guatemala newsletter and sent it to 250 journalists, some of whom used it as a source for their reporting. Bernays formed close relationships with journalists including the New York Times reporter Will Listener at and columnist Walter Winchell 5253 In January 1952 he brought a cohort of journalists from various notable newspapers on a tour of Guatemala, sponsored by the company. This technique proved highly effective and was repeated four more times. In June, 1954, the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency effected a coup d'etat codenamed Operation Lb Success. The CIA backed a minimal military force, fronted by Carlos Castillo Armas, with a psychological warfare campaign to portray military defeat as a foregone conclusion. During the coup itself, Bernays was the primary supplier of information for the International Newswire's Associated Press, United Press International and the International News Service. Following the coup, Bernays built up the image of Guatemala's new president Carlos Castillo Armas, giving advice for his public appearances both in Guatemala and in the U.S. In 1956, Bernays produced a pamphlet comparing the communist way and the Christian way. In 1959, United Fruit dispensed with all external advisors including Bernays. Techniques Third Parties Bernays argued that the covert use of third parties was morally legitimate because those parties were morally autonomous actors. If you can influence the leaders, either with or without their conscious cooperation, you automatically influence the group which they sway, he said. In order to promote sales of bacon, for example, he conducted research and found that the American public ate very light breakfast of coffee, maybe a roll and orange juice. He went to his physician and found that a heavy breakfast was sounder from the standpoint of health than a light breakfast because the body loses energy during the night and needs it during the day. He asked the physician if he would be willing, at no cost, to write to 5,000 physicians and ask them whether their judgment was the same as his confirming his judgment. About 4,500 answered back, all concurring that a more significant breakfast was better for the health of the American people than a light breakfast. He arranged for this finding to be published in newspapers throughout the country with headlines like 4,500 physicians urge bigger breakfast while other articles stated that bacon and eggs should be a central part of breakfast and, as a result of these actions, the sale of bacon went up. Describing the response to his campaign for ivory soap, Bernays wrote, as if actuated by the pressure of a button, people began working for the client instead of the client begging people to buy. Businesses found these covered methods irresistible. Struther Walker and Paul Sklar wrote in Business Finds Its Voice, 1938, that Bernays had offered a solution to popular skepticism of business which arose in the Depression, better to implant an idea in a group leader's mind and let him spread it than to write up an idea and send it to the papers as a release, in the old-fashioned way. Scientific Approach Bernays pioneered the public relations industry's use of psychology and other social sciences to design its public persuasion campaigns, if we understand the mechanism and motives of the group mind, is it not possible to control and regiment the masses according to our will without their knowing about it? The recent practice of propaganda has proved that it is possible, at least up to a certain point and within certain limits. He later called this scientific technique of opinion molding the engineering of consent 65. Bernays explained in his 1947 essay The Engineering of Consent. This phrase quite simply means the use of an engineering approach that is, action based only on thorough knowledge of the situation and on the application of scientific principles and tried practices to the task of getting people to support ideas and programs. Bernays expanded on Walter Lippmann's concept of stereotype, arguing that predictable elements could be manipulated for mass effects. But instead of a mind, universal literacy has given the common man a rubber stamp, a rubber stamp inked with advertising slogans, with editorials, with published scientific data, with the trivialities of tabloids and the profundities of history, but quite innocent of original thought. Each man's rubber stamp is the twin of millions of others, so that when these millions are exposed to the same stimuli, all receive identical imprints. The amazing readiness with which large masses accept this process is probably accounted for by the fact that no attempt is made to convince them that black is white. Instead, 
their preconceived hazy ideas that a certain gray is almost black or almost white are brought into sharper focus. Their prejudices, notions, and convictions are used as a starting point, with the result that they are drawn by a thread into passionate adherence to a given mental picture. Not only psychology but sociology played an important role for the Public Relations Council, according to Bernays. The individual is a cell organized into the social unit. Touch a nerve at a sensitive spot and you get an automatic response from certain specific members of the organism. Philosophy Bernays' vision was of a utopian society in which individuals' dangerous libidinal energies, the psychic and emotional energy associated with instinctual biological drives that Bernays viewed as inherently dangerous, could be harnessed and channeled by a corporate elite for economic benefit. Through the use of mass production, big business could fulfill the cravings of what Bernays saw as the inherently irrational and desire-driven masses, simultaneously securing the niche of a mass production economy, even in peacetime, as well as sating what he considered to be dangerous animal urges that threatened to tear society apart if left unquelled. Bernays touted the idea that the masses are driven by factors outside their conscious understanding, and therefore that their minds can and should be manipulated by the capable few. Intelligent men must realize that propaganda is the modern instrument by which they can fight for productive ends and help to bring order out of chaos. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society. In almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons, who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. Propaganda was portrayed as the only alternative to chaos. One way Bernays reconciled manipulation with liberalism was his claim that the human masses would inevitably succumb to manipulation and therefore the good propagandists could compete with the evil, without incurring any marginal moral cost. In his view, the minority which uses this power is increasingly intelligent, and works more and more on behalf of ideas that are socially constructive. Unlike some other early public relations practitioners, Bernays advocated centralization and planning. Marvin Olasky calls his 1945 book Take Your Place at the Peace Table a clear appeal for a form of mild corporate socialism. Bernays also drew on the ideas of the French writer Gustave L. E. Bone, the originator of crowd psychology, and of Wilfred Trotter, who promoted similar ideas in the Anglophone world in his book Instincts of the Herd in Peace and War. Bernays refers to these two names in his writings. Trotter, who was a head and neck surgeon at University College Hospital, London, read Freud's works, and it was he who introduced Wilfred Bion, whom he lived and worked with, to Freud's ideas. When Freud fled Vienna for London after the Anschluss, Trotter became his personal physician. Trotter, Wilfred Bion, and Ernest Jones became key members of the Freudian psychoanalysis movement in England. They would develop the field of group dynamics, largely associated with the Tavistock Institute, where many of Freud's followers worked. Thus ideas of group psychology and psychoanalysis came together in London around World War II. Recognition and Legacy Much of Bernays' reputation today stems from his persistent public relations campaign to build his own reputation as America's number one publicist. During his active years, many of his peers in the industry were offended by Bernays' continuous self-promotion. According to Scott Cutlip, Bernays was a brilliant person who had a spectacular career, but, to use an old-fashioned word, he was a braggart. Bernays attracted positive and negative attention for his grand statements about the role of public relations in society. Reviewers praised Crystallizing Public Opinion, 1923, as a pioneering study of the importance of something called public opinion. Propaganda, 1928, drew more criticism for its advocacy of mass manipulation. In the 1930s, his critics became more harsh. As the leading figure in public relations and a notorious advocate of propaganda, Bernays was compared to European fascists such as Joseph Goebbels and Adolf Hitler. Bernays himself wrote in his 1965 autobiography that Goebbels read and used his books. Rather than retreating from the spotlight, Bernays continued to play up his ideas for example, stating in a 1935 speech to the Financial Advertisers Association that strong men, including publicists, 
should become human symbols to lead the masses. On other occasions he tempered this message with the idea that, while propaganda is inevitable, the democratic system allows a pluralism of propaganda, while fascist systems offer only a single official propaganda. At the same time, Bernays was praised for his apparent success, wisdom, foresight, and influence as an originator of public relations. While opinions ranged negative to positive, there was widespread agreement that propaganda had a powerful effect on the public mind. According to John Stauber and Sheldon Rampton, in a published review of Larry Tye's biography of Bernays, it is impossible to fundamentally grasp the social, political, economic, and cultural developments of the past 100 years without some understanding of Bernays and his professional heirs in the public relations industry. PR is a 20th century phenomenon, and Bernays widely eulogized as the father of public relations at the time of his death in 1995 played a major role in defining the industry's philosophy and methods. As a result, his legacy remains a highly contested one, as evidenced by Adam Curtis' 2002 BBC documentary The Century of the Self. Now, let's take a look at the second master of public persuasion, Mr. Ivy Lee. Ivy led better Lee. July 16, 1877, November 9, 1934, was an American publicity expert and a founder of modern public relations. Lee is best known for his public relations work with the Rockefeller family. His first major client was the Pennsylvania Railroad, followed by numerous major railroads such as the New York Central, the Baltimore, and Ohio, and the Harriman Line such as the Union Pacific. He established the Association of Railroad Executives, which included providing public relations services to the industry. Lee advised major industrial corporations, including steel, automobile, tobacco, meat packing, and rubber, as well as public utilities, banks, and even foreign governments. Lee pioneered the use of internal magazines to maintain employee morale, as well as management newsletters, stockholder reports, and news releases to the media. He did a great deal of pro bono work, which he knew was important to his own public image, and during World War I, he became the publicity director for the American Red Cross. Early Life and Career Ivy Lee was born near Cedartown, Georgia, the son of a Methodist minister, James Wideman Lee, author of several books and a contributor to John L. Brandt's Anglo-Saxon Supremacy, or, Race Contributions to Civilization, 1915, who founded a prominent Atlanta family. Ivy Lee studied at Emory College and then graduated from Princeton. He worked as a newspaper reporter and stringer. He was a journalist at the New York American, the New York Times, and the New York World. Lee got his first job in 1903 as a publicity manager for the Citizens Union. He authored the book The Best Administration New York City Ever Had. He later took a job with the Democratic National Committee. Lee married Cornelia Bartlett Bigelow in 1901. They had three children, Alice Lee in 1902, James Wideman Lee II in 1906, and Ivy Lee, Jr. in 1909. Together with George Parker, he established the nation's third public relations firm, Parker and Lee, in 1905. The new agency boasted of accuracy, authenticity, and interest. It made this partnership after working together in the Democratic Party headquarters, handling publicity for Judge Alton Parker's unsuccessful presidential race against Theodore Roosevelt in 1904. The Parker and Lee firm lasted less than four years, but the junior partner, Lee, was to become one of the most influential pioneers in public relations. He evolved his philosophy in 1906 into the Declaration of Principles, the first articulation of the concept that public relations practitioners have a public responsibility that extends beyond obligations to the client. In the same year, after the 1906 Atlantic City train wreck, Lee issued what is often considered to be the first press release, after persuading the company to disclose information to journalists before they could hear it elsewhere. When Lee was hired full-time by the Pennsylvania Railroad in 1912, he was considered to be the first public relations person placed in an executive-level position. In fact, his archives reveal that he drafted one of the first job descriptions of a VP-level corporate public relations position. In 1919, he founded a public relations counseling office, Ivy Lee and Associates. During World War I, Lee served as a publicity director, and later as assistant to the chairman of the American Red Cross. Through his sister Laura, Lee was an uncle to novelist William S. Burroughs. Ivy Lee died of a brain tumor at the age of 57. Effect on Public Relations Many historians credit Lee with being the originator of modern crisis communication citation needed his principal competitor in the new public relations industry was Edward Bernays, 
and he has been credited with influencing Pendleton Dudley to enter the then nascent field. In 1914 he was to enter public relations on a much larger scale when he was retained by John D. Rockefeller Jr. to represent his family and Standard Oil, to burnish the family image, after their bloody repression of the coal mining strike in Colorado known as the Ludlow Massacre. Lee warned that the Rockefellers were losing public support due to having ordered the massacre of striking workers and their families, as well as the burning of their homes. He developed a strategy that Jr. followed to repair it. It was necessary for Jr. to overcome his shyness, go personally to Colorado to meet with the miners and their families, inspect the conditions of the homes and the factories, attend social events, and listen to the grievances, all the while being photographed for press releases. This was novel advice, and attracted widespread media attention, which opened the way to wallpaper over the conflict, and present a more humanized version of the wealthy Rockefellers. Lee guided public relations of Rockefellers and their corporate interests, including a strong involvement in the construction of the Rockefeller Center, even after he moved on to set up his own consulting firm. He was the person who brought the original, unfunded plan for Metropolitan Opera's expansion to Junior's attention, and he convinced Junior to rename the center after the family against the latter's wishes. Lee became an inaugural member of the Council on Foreign Relations in the U.S. when it was established in New York in 1921. In the early 1920s, he promoted friendly relations with Soviet Russia. In 1926, Lee wrote a famous letter to the President of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in which he presented a convincing argument for the need to normalize us Soviet political and economic relations. His supposed instruction to the son of the Standard Oil fortune was to echo in public relations henceforth, tell the truth, because sooner or later the public will find out anyway. And if the public doesn't like what you are doing, change your policies and bring them into line with what people want. The context of the quote was said to be apocryphal, being spread by Lee as self-promotion, making it both famous and infamous. Lee is considered to be the father of the modern public relations campaign when, from 1913 to 1914, he successfully lobbied for a railroad rate increase from a reluctant federal government. Lee espoused a philosophy consistent with what has sometimes been called the two-way street approach to public relations, in which PR consists of helping clients listen as well as communicate messages to their publics. In practice, however, Lee often engaged in one-way propagandizing on behalf of clients despised by the public. Shortly before his death in 1934, the U.S. Congress had been investigating his work in Nazi Germany on behalf of the company IG Farben. Lee also worked for the Bethlehem Steel Corporation, in which capacity he famously advised managers to list and number their top priorities every day, and work on tasks in the order of their importance until daily time allows, not proceeding until a task was completed. For this suggestion company head Charles M. Schwab later paid him $25,000, the equivalent of $400,000 in 2016 dollars, saying it had been the most profitable advice he had received. Over his career he also was a public relations advisor to George Westinghouse, Charles Lindbergh, John W. Davis, Otto Kahn, and Walter Chrysler. Propaganda Form of communication intended to sway the audience through presenting only one side of the argument. During the Bosnian War, 1992-95, Serbian VE, Ernje Novosti published a war report supposedly from Bosnia titled Painful Reminder, and illustrated with a well-known Euros Predi's painting from 1888, presented as an actual photograph from the scene of, as stated in report below image, a Serbian boy whose whole family was killed by Bosnian Muslims. Predi's original painting is titled Soro, Ena Maj, Inam Grobu. Orphan at Mother's Grave. Propaganda is information that is used primarily to influence an audience and further an agenda, which may not be objective and may be presenting facts selectively to encourage a particular synthesis or perception, or using loaded language to produce an emotional rather than a rational response to the information that is presented. Propaganda is often associated with material prepared by governments, but activist groups, companies, religious organizations, the media, and individuals can also produce propaganda. In the 20th century, the term propaganda had often been associated with a manipulative approach, but propaganda historically is a neutral descriptive term. A wide range of materials and media are used for conveying propaganda messages, which changed as new technologies were invented, including paintings, cartoons, posters, pamphlets, films, radio shows, TV shows, and websites. More recently, the digital age has given rise to new ways of disseminating propaganda, for example, through the use of bots and algorithms to create computational propaganda and spread fake or biased news using social media.
Propaganda is a modern Latin word, ablative singular feminine of the gerundive form of propagare, meaning to spread or to propagate, thus propaganda means for that which is to be propagated. Originally this word derived from a new administrative body of the Catholic Church, Congregation, created in 1622 as part of the Counter-Reformation, called the Congregatio de Propaganda Fide, Congregation for Propagating the Faith, or informally simply propaganda. Its activity was aimed at propagating the Catholic faith in non-Catholic countries. From the 1790s, the term began being used also to refer to propaganda in secular activities. The term began taking a pejorative or negative connotation in the mid-19th century, when it was used in the political sphere. Definition Harold Laswell provided a broad definition to the term propaganda, writing it as, the expression of opinions or actions carried out deliberately by individuals or groups with a view to influencing the opinions or actions of other individuals or groups for predetermined ends and through psychological manipulations. Garth Jowett and Victoria O'Donnell theorize that propaganda is converted into persuasion, and that propagandists also use persuasive methods in the construction of their propagandist discourse. This theory signifies the similarity and optimization of propaganda using persuasive techniques in the development and cultivation of propagandist materials. In a 1929 literary debate with Edward Bernays, Everett Dean Martin argues that, propaganda is making puppets of us. We are moved by hidden strings which the propagandist manipulates. Bernays acknowledged in his book Propaganda that the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. History Primitive forms of propaganda have been a human activity as far back as reliable recorded evidence exists. The Behistun inscription, c. 515 BC, detailing the rise of Darius I to the Persian throne is viewed by most historians as an early example of propaganda 10. Another striking example of propaganda during ancient history is the last Roman civil wars, 44-30 BC, during which Octavian and Mark Antony blamed each other for obscure and degrading origins, cruelty, cowardice, oratorical and literary incompetence, debaucheries, luxury, drunkenness, and other slanders 11. This defamation took the form of ratio, Roman rhetorical genre of the invective, which was decisive for shaping the Roman public opinion at this time. Propaganda during the Reformation, helped by the spread of the printing press throughout Europe, and in particular within Germany, caused new ideas, thoughts, and doctrine to be made available to the public in ways that had never been seen before the 16th century. During the era of the American Revolution, the American colonies had a flourishing network of newspapers and printers who specialized in the topic on behalf of the patriots, and to a lesser extent on behalf of the loyalists. 12 Barbara Diggs Brown conceives that the negative connotations of the term propaganda are associated with the earlier social and political transformations that occurred during the French Revolutionary Period movement of 1789 to 1799 between the and the middle portion of the 19th century in a time where the word started to be used in a non-clerical and political context. The first large-scale and organized propagation of government propaganda was occasioned by the outbreak of war in 1914. After the defeat of Germany in the First World War, military officials such as Erich Ludendorff suggested that British propaganda had been instrumental in their defeat. Adolf Hitler came to echo this view, believing that it had been a primary cause of the collapse of morale and the revolts in the German home front and navy in 1918, see also, Dolch Stoss legend. In Mein Kampf, 1925, Hitler expounded his theory of propaganda, which provided a powerful base for his rise to power in 1933. Historian Robert Ensor explains that Hitler, puts no limit on what can be done by propaganda, people will believe anything, provided they are told it often enough and emphatically enough, and that contradictors are either silenced or smothered in calumny. Most propaganda in Nazi Germany was produced by the Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda under Joseph Goebbels. World War II saw continued use of propaganda as a weapon of war, building on the experience of WWI, by Goebbels, and the British Political Warfare Executive, as well as the United States Office of War Information. In the early 20th century, the invention of motion pictures gave propaganda creators a powerful tool for advancing political and military interests when it came to reaching a broad segment of the population and creating consent or encouraging rejection of the real or imagined enemy. In the years following the October Revolution of 1917, the Soviet government sponsored the Russian film industry with the purpose of making propaganda films, 
e.g. the 1925 film The Battleship Potemkin glorifies communist ideals. In World War II, Nazi filmmakers produced highly emotional films to create popular support for occupying the Sudetenland and attacking Poland. The 1930s and 1940s, which saw the rise of totalitarian states and the Second World War, are arguably the golden age of propaganda. Leni Riefenstahl, a filmmaker working in Nazi Germany, created one of the best-known propaganda movies, Triumph of the Will. In the US, animation became popular, especially for winning over youthful audiences and aiding the US war effort, e.g. Der Fuhrer's Face, 1942, which ridicules Hitler and advocates the value of freedom. US war films in the early 1940s were designed to create a patriotic mindset and convince viewers that sacrifices needed to be made to defeat the Axis powers. Polish filmmakers in Great Britain created anti-Nazi color film Calling Mr. Smith, 1943, about current Nazi crimes in occupied Europe and about lies of Nazi propaganda. The West and the Soviet Union both used propaganda extensively during the Cold War. Both sides used film, television, and radio programming to influence their own citizens, each other, and third world nations. George Orwell's contemporaneous novels Animal Farm and 1984 portray the use of propaganda in fictional dystopian societies. During the Cuban Revolution, Fidel Castro stressed the importance of propaganda 20 better source needed propaganda was used extensively by communist forces in the Vietnam War as means of controlling people's opinions. During the Yugoslav Wars, propaganda was used as a military strategy by governments of Federal Republic of Yugoslavia and Croatia. Propaganda was used to create fear and hatred, and particularly incite the Serb population against the other ethnicities, Bosniaks, Croats, Albanians and other non-Serbs. Serb media made a great effort in justifying, revising, or denying mass war crimes committed by Serb forces during these wars. Public Perceptions In the early 20th century the term propaganda was used by the founders of the nascent public relations industry to refer to their people. Literally translated from the Latin gerundiv as things that must be disseminated, in some cultures the term is neutral or even positive, while in others the term has acquired a strong negative connotation. The connotations of the term propaganda can also vary over time. For example, in Portuguese and some Spanish-language-speaking countries, particularly in the Southern Cone, the word propaganda usually refers to the most common manipulative media, advertising. In English, propaganda was originally a neutral term for the dissemination of information in favor of any given cause. During the 20th century, however, the term acquired a thoroughly negative meaning in Western countries, representing the intentional dissemination of often false, but certainly compelling claims to support or justify political actions or ideologies. According to Harold Laswell, the term began to fall out of favor due to growing public suspicion of propaganda in the wake of its use during World War I by the Creel Committee in the United States and the Ministry of Information in Britain, writing in 1928, Laswell observed, in democratic countries the official propaganda bureau was looked upon with genuine alarm, for fear that it might be suborned to party and personal ends. The outcry in the United States against Mr. Creel's famous Bureau of Public Information, or Inflammation, helped to din into the public mind the fact that propaganda existed. The public's discovery of propaganda has led to a grade of lamentation over it. Propaganda has become an epithet of contempt and hate, and the propagandists have sought protective coloration in such names as Public Relations Council, Specialist in Public Education, Public Relations Advisor. In 1949, political science professor Dayton David McKean wrote, After World War I the word came to be applied to what you don't like of the other fellow's publicity, as Edward L. Bernays said. The term is essentially contested and some have argued for a neutral definition, arguing that ethics depend on intent and context, while others define it as necessarily unethical and negative. Dr. Emma Bryant defines it as the deliberate manipulation of representations, including text, pictures, video, speech etc., with the intention of producing any effect in the audience, e.g. action or inaction, reinforcement or transformation of feelings, ideas, attitudes, or behaviors, that is desired by the propagandist. Types Identifying propaganda has always been a problem. The main difficulties have involved differentiating propaganda from other types of persuasion, and avoiding a biased approach. Richard Allen Nelson provides a definition of the term, Propaganda is neutrally defined as a systematic form of purposeful persuasion that attempts to influence the emotions, attitudes, opinions, and actions of specified target audiences for ideological, political or commercial purposes through the controlled transmission of one-sided messages, which may or may not be factual, 
via mass and direct media channels. The definition focuses on the communicative process involved, or more precisely, on the purpose of the process, and allow propaganda to be considered objectively and then interpreted as positive or negative behavior depending on the perspective of the viewer or listener. According to historian Zbyn, K. Zeman, propaganda is defined as either white, gray or black. White propaganda openly discloses its source and intent. Gray propaganda has an ambiguous or non-disclosed source or intent. Black propaganda purports to be published by the enemy or some organization besides its actual origins, compare with black operation, a type of clandestine operation in which the identity of the sponsoring government is hidden. In scale, these different types of propaganda can also be defined by the potential of true and correct information to compete with the propaganda. For example, opposition to white propaganda is often readily found and may slightly discredit the propaganda source. Opposition to gray propaganda, when revealed, often by an inside source, may create some level of public outcry. Opposition to black propaganda is often unavailable and may be dangerous to reveal, because public cognizance of black propaganda tactics and sources would undermine or backfire the very campaign the black propagandists supported. The propagandist seeks to change the way people understand an issue or situation for the purpose of changing their actions and expectations in ways that are desirable to the interest group.